over the past few weeks, two women in the Bible, Mary and Elizabeth, who up until last week were separate characters going through very similar things. Elizabeth blessed with a child miraculously in old age, even though she had been barren for her whole life, and then she would soon bear now a great prophet named John. And then Mary, though a young girl with no husband, would be blessed with a child without even a husband or a man to to take part in it yet. And these two have taught us so much, and then last week they finally met, and their meeting taught us so much. And now we continue to get to know them a little better. We learned something about Mary that I think we often forget that is hardly ever mentioned in portrayals of her. You know, we've got this picture of her wearing blue and like this whole thing we got figured out, right? And the Bible is about to show us something that we often forget. Mary was not just a contemplative person, but a songwriter. Uh, She, several times we read, she saw something and stored it up in her heart. The shepherds came and she stored it up in her heart and the angel appeared to her and she stored that up in her heart. And uh, at one point the prophet Simeon says incredible things and she stores it up in her heart. And then her son is lost at the temple at 12 years old and she just stores it up in her heart. She's this very deeply contemplative person. And often people who are like that tend to be creative. They tend to have a creative, all that thinking tends to turn into something. And it may surprise you to be reminded that with all of Mary's thinking and all of her contemplation, the Spirit of the Lord resting upon her, out comes a song, a song that we still remember 2,000 years later. We're going to spend the next two weeks in that very song. Uh, This week, focusing on its main theme, which is the way that God lifts the lowly and topples the proud. And next week, we will spend on just the last few verses that remind us that all of this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The Old Testament has been anticipating what is about to happen in Mary's womb. Let's look together then at Mary's song. Right before we do, I just want to remind you what's happened with Elizabeth. Elizabeth, as I mentioned earlier, was blessed with a child in old age after many years of barrenness. And one thing we may forget about that era is that today, when a woman faces infertility, it's a personal, painful thing. And it was like that for them, but it had an additional difficulty to it. And that is that society often looked down on you. There was open rebuke and scorn for women who went through what Elizabeth went through. And this is why we read in verse 24, after she has spent her life in a lowly social state, The Lord says this to her. It says, After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So she has been lowly for her whole life, and now the Lord has taken away her reproach and made her the mother of a great prophet. That theme is going to be multiplied now in Mary's song, a lowly, insignificant woman from a very small town who now will say this in verse 46 and on. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. 
He has shown strength with his arm and has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. The words of the Lord. Through that song, the Spirit of God warms our hearts to the coming of Jesus, who will raise the humble and topple the proud when he comes. Mary's song is full of expectation, right? She is literally expecting, and Elizabeth is literally expecting. And sometimes we use the word pregnant to talk about expecting something. Something is pregnant with expectation or pregnant with great meaning. And these two women are literally pregnant and great things are about to happen. So we're at a point in the story where we are looking forward to this birth of this Christ. We are anticipating it. We are expecting it. And Mary, looking down, seeing that her body is starting to change shape from what the Lord is doing, is expecting something great. She tells us in the story just what she is expecting to happen. She looks and says, what the Lord is doing is he is is lifting up the lowly and he is toppling the proud. And that's the meaning of her song. When Jesus comes, when the thing she is expecting comes, at the coming of Jesus, he will lift the humble no matter how low they are today. And he will topple the proud no matter how high they are today. When Jesus comes, he will lift the lowly no matter how low they are today. And he will topple the proud no matter how high they are today. This is a great theme in scripture and it comes from God's very character. As James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We might expect then that when he comes, he would oppose the proud and he would do very kind things for the humble. So at his first coming, Mary looks ahead and says, this is what he is doing and this is what he has done for me and for Israel. That first coming is for us a picture of his second coming. He will come again and when he does, he will lift up the humble no matter how low we are and he will topple the proud no matter how great and high they are. We saw a moment ago, this was already true of Elizabeth, right? She was humble and lowly in her day. And no matter how low and and, and rejected she was by that culture around her, she can look up and say, finally, it's late in coming, but the Lord has looked upon me and taken away my reproach among my people. Now, in today's text, Mary can say the same thing about herself. She can say... He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That's significant. Because Mary is, up to this point, a very small fish in a very small pond. You may have heard of a big fish in a small pond. She is a small fish in a small pond. A young girl of insignificant stature, uh, 
engaged to a man she probably had no part in choosing or probably probably just chose her husband for her of very little means in a very small town that is hardly insignificant and on the map. And, and even later, they will look down upon the town that she is from. She's a small fish and a small pond. But what the Lord is doing is lifting her up. And from now on, all generations will call her blessed. Now we look back upon her and think of her as one of the most blessed people in all of history. So she's gone from being a small fish in a small pond to being the great white shark that is ruling the ocean, right? The biggest fish in the biggest ocean. And this is what the Lord does. He takes the small and lifts them up and makes them great when they are humble before him. She says in verse 49 that, Though the normal way of the world is that she would just go on being insignificant for all of her life, in this case, it is God who is the game changer. Why does she go from insignificant and humble to blessed? Because he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So, this coming of God into history, it's an intervention in the normal pattern. Right? The normal pattern is the lofty and proud continue to win and continue to beat their chests, and the lowly and humble continue to lose, and it just keeps going that way, and people like Mary don't often wind up in the pages of history, but the Lord intervenes and lifts her high. So it's the Lord's intervention that breaks this normal pattern of history and lifts people like Mary very high. And it's because of this that she praises God. That's what we see in verses 46 and 47. How does she respond to the Lord lifting her high? She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is very lofty and eloquent language, far beyond a young girl like Mary to say. It would be as if we were speaking in Elizabethan English today, right? She is essentially saying, I praise God but using lofty language to do it now lifted high and speaking in this way. What is she saying? She's saying praise to God. Now we see in verse 54 that it's not just true of Elizabeth and it's not just true of Mary. This is true of all of Israel. He has helped Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So in this way, Mary and Elizabeth are a picture of believing, waiting, faithful Israel. Elizabeth living righteously for many years, even into old age, though the Lord had given her no child. Mary, a young girl willing to say, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. All right, it's late in time, especially for Elizabeth, but lifted from lowness to, to highness, lowliness to highness. In the same way, Israel had been waiting and waiting and had become very low on the table of nations in the world, conquered first by, uh, by the Babylonians and then by Persia and then by Greece and now by Rome. And they're just constantly under foreign oppression, lowly in the eyes of everyone, but the Lord is remembering them and lifting them and helping them up. And those who are waiting for them will meet many of those characters waiting for God to act, are seeing wonderful things that are being done. So not just for Elizabeth and Mary, but for all of believing Israel, the humble ones who look to him and wait on him, he lifts them up and exalts them high. 
And we see it is even bigger than that in verses 50 to 53. This exaltation of the lowly is true for everyone who fears God, Israelite or Gentile. You can see it in verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. It's for them that he's shown strength with his arm and scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. This is all of the proud. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That's everyone of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So it's not just a little thing he does every once in a while for Elizabeth and for Mary and leaves everyone else alone like lottery winners or something. No, it's everyone who looks to him in humility, everyone who trembles with reverence before him finds themselves lifted up and everyone who comes proud to him finds themselves toppled. This is what the Lord does when he comes. It may be late in coming, but when he does, he lifts up the humble and he topples the proud no matter how high or how low they are today. We will see that this is a major theme in the Gospel of Luke, and he's now stated it plainly. In the minds of these Gospel writers, when Jesus comes, the kingdom comes. The two are one. So this is why Jesus begins to preach, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom comes when the king comes. And so when he's here, his kingdom is here. And a big theme in the kingdom through all the Gospels, and certainly in this one, is that in that kingdom, the lowly are lifted up and the proud are toppled. This is why in verse 4, just before he begins preaching, he pulls out a scroll and he reads... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. And then he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing of it. Because what he does is preach good news to the lowly. And then he begins to preach and the opening lines of his first great sermon are, blessed are the poor for they shall be rich, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are you when you are reviled in the eyes of the world and persecuted for my name, for so they did to the prophets before you, and great is your reward in heaven. He's preaching good news to the lowly who look to him. He is going to lift them up. A chapter later in verse 7, John the Baptist will be a little confused. Wait a minute, Jesus, are you the one? You're not meeting my expectations of what the coming Messiah would be. So he sends messengers to him. Are you the one, Jesus, or shall we look for another? Is the kingdom of God here? And Jesus' answer is, well, go tell John what you see. Here's the proof that the kingdom is here. The blind are recovering their sight. The, the, The lame are walking again. The dead are raised. Right? Good news to those who are unfortunate. There's the mark of the kingdom in the way that John knows that the kingdom has come in him. Mary says that he fills the hungry with good things, but the rich he sends away empty. That's verse 53. And we see Jesus fulfill this when he comes. He stands before 5,000 people who have heard him teach and are hungry He's got compassion on because people are hungry, have nothing to eat. And so he multiplies just a few loaves of bread and a few fish and sends it out for everyone to eat. And when they're done, they have more broken pieces of leftovers than they had to begin with, right? So he feeds them all miraculously, fills them up with good things and sends them away full. 
And then in chapter 16, a rich man comes up to him and says, I want to follow you. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, you've kept all the commandments, but you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor. And that man walks away sad. So the hungry, he fills up with good things and sends them away full. And the proud and the rich come to him and they're sent away sad and empty, even fulfilling Mary's words right here. That first coming, all those miracles, all those things you saw there, they were a preview of the second coming of Jesus. That's why he did so many miracles, why he taught so much and people rejoiced so much at his teaching, because he's going to come again. And when he does, the blind will regain their sight and the lame will be able to walk and the dead will be raised and the hunger will be filled with good things as we sit down at the marriage supper of the lamb. He will fulfill all of these things when he finally comes. And on that day, we may say it was late in coming. We may say we waited a lot longer than we thought we were gonna have to wait for it. 2,000 years is a long time. I don't know how long it will be, but it's been a long time, but we will say it was worth it because he has filled the hungry. He has filled the lowly who look to him. So in this way then, Mary's song teaches us that when Jesus comes, he lifts the humble no matter how low they are, and he tops the proud no matter how high they are. This is because there is going to be a great interruption in history. You see the pattern of the world, right? The, the Vladimir Putins and the President Xi's of China and the rulers in other countries continue to do their thing until they die. And then if they are toppled or they do die, someone else just replaces them. And the poor continue to cry out to God. And we wonder, how can we stop all of the evil in the world the most powerful people, the most evil people in the world are so powerful. What are we going to do, right? The, the pattern of history continues on. But what you need to see is that there's going to be an interruption in it. Jesus is going to enter again human history. And that pattern will be broken forever. Then will the lowly who suffer today be exalted. Then will the Putins and Shes of the world be toppled once and forever. This is because the Lord is going to come and interrupt history. This means a few things for us. You've been reading a lot in the news about Ukraine and the, the terrors that are going on there, the bravery of the people, but no matter how much they fight, they just can't seem to finally get Russia out of there. Is it ever going to end? Uh, I can just imagine being in the shoes of someone who is there or has come here from there, and it has been Hundreds of years, those people have been suffering under a prayer. This is not new to them. A uh, hundred years ago, they were under the thumb of rich and wicked czars who were just putting their faces into the dirt. And then the communist revolution came along and promised that it was going to give them riches and everything they needed, but it just led to even more oppression under Stalin and under Lenin and under uh, others. And then finally the USSR broke apart and they got a little bit of a reprieve and how ah, we can build a nation. And then in comes Putin with his armies. I mean, over and over and over again, these people have been hurt in this way. And how easy would it be if you're in that situation to just look around and say, this is never going to change. We are always going to be under the thumb of someone else. But Mary would sing 
to the humble in Ukraine who, who would look to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you come and rescue us? That the day will come when every last one of them will be lifted high and every last oppressive ruler will be toppled. And so Jesus can say with certainty, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. It does not matter how lowly you are. It does not matter how oppressed you are. If you are willing to come humbly to Jesus, he will lift you high when he returns. So it means something for those who are suffering many places in the world. It means something for those of us here today as well, though, because we see that pattern in the world today. Uh, We might think of someone here in Greenwood who uh, owns a business, lots of small business and medium-sized business owners here in Greenwood. And let's just imagine there's there's one man who owns a a dry cleaning business and he's been working on it for his whole life. He looks forward to handing it down to his sons one day, has worked hard, built up a good name for himself, has a few employees. And then he realizes that his competitors are getting ahead of him and they're doing it by cheating. They're doing it by exaggerating their product and advertisement, by cutting corners on their customers and building up better funds with which they can expand more aggressively. And this honest business owner isn't able to do the same thing. And over time, his competitor becomes so large that he's just crushed in the competition. And the day comes when he just has to go to that competitor and sell his business for almost nothing and now has nothing to hand down to his children. Oh, wouldn't you be tempted to despair and think this is just how the world works, right? Like the Walmarts just come in and crush the mom and pops of the world. Isn't that how it goes? But one who looks to Jesus with humility, it may be late in coming, but he is going to come with reward in his hand for all those who are faithful, with reward in his hand for every honest businessman who missed out on more because he held fast to his integrity. When the Lord comes, he will topple the proud, no matter how high they are, and exalt the lowly, no matter how low they are. Now, maybe some of you own businesses, but that may be be tough to connect with your life. For a lot of us, what we wrestle with is knowing or you may be fearing that our lives are going to wind up insignificant in the records of history. In an era like ours, when there is so much pressure to be great, do great things, and make your impact on the world. For men, it has long been upon us a temptation from the world around us to get ahead at work, get on top of everything at work, and just basically wind up by the end of your life winning completely, just completely on top of whatever business you're in or whatever anything that you are in. The best croquet player, the best businessman, the best accountant in the world, whatever you want to be, there's that desire to just be great and win. And for young people today, there's an incredible pressure put on us to make our impact and change the world and be great. Uh, I heard the words recently from a young woman who was recently in high school, and she was in high school out in California, and she told the story of her teacher outlining all the problems that are in the world and all the ones that in California they're really worried about, climate change, uh, inflation, just all the racism, just outlines all of them, puts them all on the board and says, and your generation is going to fix it. So it just puts all the pressure in the world on her and her classmates. And she said, I just buckled under the pressure because I could never fix that. 
So young people today have so much pressure to, to make their impact, to change the world, to fix all the problems that are being handed down to them and find greatness in making a difference. And we send messages to women in our culture too. Uh, messages that are meant to empower a, a you can be anything message, right? You can have it all, you can do it all, right? Like Barbie's going to the moon as an astronaut and comes back and goes on a safari and you can do all these things, ladies. You can do anything if you put your mind to it. And what I think a lot of us hear, a lot of ladies here, is not you can be anything, but you have to be everything. And if you don't get all that stuff, you're not good enough. And so here's this pressure on young men to be great and on women to be great and on young people as a generation to be a great generation that fixes everything. And Mary sings into that a sigh of relief that says, none of us have to be great because he who is mighty has done a great thing for me. So Mary's path to greatness is not, I'm going to get on top of the business world. I'm going to be CEO of a Fortune 500 company, take five days off when I have a baby and then get back to work. That's not her path to greatness. Her path is to look to the Lord and say, what's your plan for me? Okay. Sounds strange, but no one's done that before, but I'll do it, right? I am the servant of the Lord. May it be to me as you have said. And she waits on the mighty one to do great things for her. So here's the freedom then that she offers to us. We no longer have to chase greatness in this world. We no longer have to be remembered in this world. We no longer have to have the world look up to us and laud us as great. No, if the Lord has for us an insignificant life where we live, die, and are forgotten, that's okay. Because our Lord is coming back, and when he does, he who is mighty will do a great thing for us. We don't need greatness in this life, because we have greatness in the next life. There's a slogan that's put on t-shirts, uh, and you know, a lot of times slogans on t-shirts are a little sassy, and it's a little sassy and a little disrespectful, but the slogan is, well-behaved women rarely make history. Have you seen that on t-shirts? And the feminists are just all into that right now, right? It's, it's a quote falsely attributed to all kinds of historic figures. Some people think Marilyn Monroe said it. No evidence she ever said it. Betsy Ross, some others. Uh, but actually, it's misattributed. Uh, it was actually written by a female historian in the 70s. Uh, her name was Laurel Thatcher, Thatcher Ulrich. Difficult for me to pronounce. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. Ulrich, a historian in the 70s who was trying to answer the question, especially then, why is it that the most evil and wicked women in the world make history and all of the great moms out there get forgotten? Like Isabella of Spain and uh, Mary, Marianne Cotton, the serial killer, and uh, Mary I of England, Bloody Mary. Like, like all the women that get remembered in history are just doing these terrible things. And the truly great ones are being forgotten. And so she spent a lot of her career uncovering the lives of ordinary women, wives, mothers, people who served at church, and writing about them so that history would remember them. And this is the paragraph that that quote really came from. She says, Cotton Mather called them the hidden ones. 
They never preached or sat at a deacon's bench, nor did they vote or attend Harvard. Neither, because they were virtuous women, did they question God or the magistrates. They prayed secretly, read through the Bible at least once a year, and went to hear the minister preach even when it snowed. Hoping for an eternal crown, they never asked to be remembered on earth. And they haven't been. Well-behaved women seldom make history. Against antinomians and witches, these pious matrons have had little chance at all. So why were so many people in history, and this isn't just women, it's men too, so many ordinary men, content to live, die, and be forgotten? Why are we okay with that? Because we're seeking a heavenly crown and an eternal kingdom. And so we don't have to be remembered in this world, do we? So, so there's the heart of Christian faithfulness. It is not a heart that says, I've got to be great in this world and Jesus is my path to being great in this world. It's a heart that says, I know the mighty one will make me great in the next world. And so I don't need to be great in this world. Now there's the freedom to seek, as the scripture says, a peaceful, quiet, and godly life. Knowing that he who is mighty will do a great thing for us. One thing that I've pointed out a few times is that this exaltation of the lowly and toppling of the proud often feels late in coming. That's a big theme in the scriptures, and Mary hints at it here. You can think of the slaves in Egypt waiting for 400 years before the Lord rescued them. I bet it felt late in coming to them, so late they may have lost heart and stopped crying out some of them. Or you can think of this era of history here that Mary is in. For hundreds of years now, oppressed by foreign governments, the prophets have gone silent, the kings are not ruling, the priests are not doing much. Does it even feel like the Lord is working anymore? And finally, as we sing, late in time, behold him come, right? The offspring of the virgin's womb. Some of the hymns talk about uh, him coming amid the cold of winter. You may know it came a flower bright amid the cold of winter. And you should know that's not because we think Jesus was born in the winter. We've been mixing him and Frosty the Snowman for so long that we think that he was born in the winter time. He's probably born in May, April, something like that. But he was born after the autumn of Israel's life and in the winter of Israel's life. That's why we apply that imagery there. And so we say he came a flower bright amid the cold of winter when half spent was the night. It felt late in coming, but this is what the Lord does. Mary mentions this just briefly when she says in verses 54 and 55 that he has remembered Israel, right? It's been a while, but he remembered he has not forgotten us. And this is true of the second coming as well. 2,000 years feels like a long time. The the churches in the first century thought, wow, he's really delaying and he's really taking a long time to come back. And here we are 2,000 years later and he is delaying, he's taking a long time to come back. The scripture says that is because of his patience. That is to give as much time as, as, as many come into the kingdom need to come. If he had come, a lot of people predicted he was gonna come back in 1988 Uh, We laugh about that now. We say they were wrong. Thank God they were wrong because I had not come to Christ by 1988. Why didn't he come in 1988? 
to give me more time to come into the kingdom, give some of you more time to come in. And so why is he not coming back right now to give others more time to come in, to give us time to go and get them and bring the gospel to them, to give them time to come in? So as he comes late like this, it begins to feel like the exaltation of the proud that happens now and the trampling upon the humble is just going to continue forever. It's been going on that way forever. But late in time, he will come. That puts a temptation on that Ukrainian refugee, on that business owner, on most of us who feel we're going to live insignificant lives and live, die, and be forgotten. To say, well, if he is so late in coming and it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, I guess I better start getting in on the dog fight, right? If I'm going to get ahead, I'm going to have to take care of business. But the Lord may be slow in his coming, as some count slowness, but he will come and he will exalt the lowly. There's kind of a far-fetched illustration I could give you to, to uh, picture what this might be like. Uh, many of you are watching the World Cup Right. Many of you just turned off the World Cup for good because the states have lost, right? But some of you have been at least watching it. And uh, I got to say, losing to the Dutch isn't a bad way to go. They're, they're great, but man, I wish we'd gone farther. But anyhow, let's imagine that the World Cup is beginning and the umpires get together and they announce something that sounds a little far-fetched to us, but it is likened to how God runs the world. Imagine they get together and they say, uh, we are going to stay off the field for a while and we will not be handing out yellow cards and red cards during the games. In fact, we are going to wait until the end of the tournament to award all of the penalties, reckon all of the scores correctly, adjust who won this game and who won that game, and determine the winner. So now the umpires are off the field, the players are playing soccer, and inevitably, of course, one player slide tackles another, and it's real dirty, and then, huh, Nobody did anything. Hmm. And you can imagine how quickly this would degrade into just an all-out blood fest of soccer matches, right? With no one enforcing the rules, suddenly we'd handballs everywhere. No one would be following the rules anymore. And so play just degrades more and more and more until the two most ruthless teams have made it to the finals. One of them destroys the other, is standing up at the ceremony, beating their chest. They rip their shirts off. They're tearing the goalposts out of the field. And oh, we have won. And then the umpires step onto the field and they say, okay, now it's time for the reckoning. You are proud now, but you were disqualified six games ago. Get off the field. In second place team, you were disqualified four games ago. You two, get off the field. Right? And so and so on and so forth, all the way down through the tournament. You thought you won this one two goals to none, but really you lost it three to none because you got those goals illegally and you blocked the other ones with your hands illegally, adjusting all the scores, all the games, and then finally exalting the one team that held fast to the rules and got eliminated in the group stage and everyone forgot about. The whole thing would get flipped over. It would feel late in coming, but it would be made right. Now, when the Lord chooses to delay judgment, to give others more time to come in, many of us tend to react the same way, don't we? We do something wrong, and hey, nothing happened. 
kind of feels like there's no God in heaven and no judgment day coming and I'm going to get away with some stuff. And so we start doing more and more and more and the proud and mighty tend to win more and more and more. But the message Mary has for us is that the umpire is going to step on the field. And when he does, that lowly team that everyone forgot about in the group stage is going to be lifted high because they held fast to him and to their integrity. So what do we do then? Well, some of you are considering coming to Jesus and you want to know as much as you can about him. I want to tell you as much as I can about him. One thing to know is that coming to him, part of receiving him, is coming humbly, even humbling yourself before him, no matter how great you are in this world. You could come a self-made business owner worth millions of dollars, or you can come with nothing. Either way, you come before him truly with nothing. So this means the rich person comes to him and says, Lord, many regard me as rich in this world, but I know that morally I'm bankrupt and in debt. And I know that when it comes to my ability to heal my fading body and raise myself from the dead, I'm bankrupt. And so I come humbly and I need you. This is the humble heart that gets exalted. And if you would come to Jesus, we all must come as beggars with open hands. So when you come, and I hope you come even today, come humbly. Come looking to receive freely from him with no credit to your own name. Come with your hands open. For those of us that are Christians, it means a few things. First, examining our hearts. Mary is showing us here the heart of one who has been changed by God. What does it look like in everyday life to have the Lord enter your life and change you? Well, part of it is Mary's contentment to live a simple life. If she had never been exalted as the mother of Jesus, we can kind of read from her words that she would have been just fine with that, right? The Lord looked on her humble estate and she was not grabbing for more, but the Lord looked at her. And over the years, we learn to abandon our path to greatness as Christians and pursue the Lord's path, that is serving others and accruing riches in heaven that will be ours one day. The Apostle Paul learned this over time, and we've got to ask, have I been learning it as I have been a Christian these years? So the Apostle Paul can say uh, he had been a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? The highest of the high in the Jewish rabbinic system, Uh, Everyone looked up to him. He studied at the feet of the best mentor. He had all the pedigree, all the credentials. And then he realizes at the feet of Jesus, that doesn't mean anything. What I need to do is humble myself before him and ask forgiveness. And then the Lord says to him, I'll show you now how much you must suffer for my name. And so sometimes he is speaking before great crowds and it might be him that they want to exalt. And other times he is being beaten by the government so lowly. He's high sometimes, he's low sometimes. And he writes to the Philippians and he says, I've learned the secret of being contentment whether I have much or little. And I know how to be brought high and I know how to be brought low. He says, I can do it all through Christ who strengthens me. This was something he learned over time. And that contentment that Mary has, that Paul learned, we got to ask as Christians, am I learning that at the feet of Jesus? How long have I been following him and is my idea of greatness still a great might in this world that I am trying to pursue for myself? 
Or is my path to greatness just serving others, loving the Lord in this life and being exalted in the next life? Am I trying to do great things for me? Or am I willing to let he who is mighty do a great thing for me in his time? This can be a mark of your maturity as a Christian, how much the Lord is working in you. The other thing we must do is if we are Christians, along with Mary in the first two verses, we should rejoice. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So when we sing infant holy, infant lowly, oh, we magnify the Lord. We have reason to rejoice because he looked on our humble places as beggars before him and he has lifted us high. When we sing of angels singing, hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. We can sing that with all of our hearts because this mighty one who came to earth has done a great thing for us. And so I hope Christians that you leave encouraged this morning. You don't have to be great in this world. Pull that pressure right out of your heart. Now wait for he who is mighty to do great things for you. Love others, serve others, and love the Lord for your life. I'm going to pray now, and I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward while I pray. We're going to prepare ourselves for the supper. Uh, As they're coming forward, I just want to introduce you to what we do here if you're new here. Uh, We take this supper, the Lord instituted it himself when he was on earth, and it is a symbol of his body and blood that were given to us for the forgiveness of our sins. He died and rose uh, in his death, paying for our sins, and his resurrection guaranteeing us new life. And we receive that by faith, by trusting in him. And so we're going to symbolize that together by saying we each receive that gift he offered. We're going to receive these symbols even in our bodies. So we've got bread then that symbolizes his body, a cup that symbolizes his blood. If your trust is in Jesus Christ and you are following him faithfully, we want to invite you to take this supper with us. We will first examine our consciences because we are drawing very near to the presence of God as we do this. We do not want to do that with secret sin in our hearts that we're not willing to give up or some part of the Bible we're not willing to believe, right? We got to come back with full hearts, clean consciences. We're going to ask the Spirit to search us reveal any sin to us. If you find any in your heart, confess it up to the Lord before we take the supper together. Let's pray and we'll do that.